HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Alexa Santos. The Feed Feed is the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. Here on the podcast, we are speaking with members of the hashtag Feed Feed community to hear their stories, learn about their culinary inspirations, and get some of their best cooking tips. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Abra Behrens. Abra is a James Beard-nominated Michigan chef, former farmer, and author of multiple cookbooks. She's the executive chef at Grainer Farm in Three Oaks, Michigan, where she creates all of her dishes using ingredients from the restaurant's organic farm. At the restaurant, they also host popular one-of-a-kind dinner events with the goal of connecting people with the best of Southwest Michigan's diverse agriculture. Thank you so much for being here, Abra. This all sounds so cool, and I'm so excited to learn more about everything that you're doing over there. Oh my gosh. Well, I've been a big Feed Feed fan for so long that it's really a treat to be here. Yay. So start from the beginning for me. Where did you grow up and where was, I guess, your family background from? So that like basically what cuisine did you grow up with? (laughs) Well, I grew up in uh, Western Michigan. So, you know, a little bit South of Holland. And I was lucky enough to grow up in a family that was full of great eaters. And my mom was a really incredible cook. So even in, you know, small town Michigan in the eighties, we were, you know, she had a countertop rotisserie and was, you know, rotisserie roasting woodcock and guinea hen and things like that. And using balsamic vinegar before it was available in the store and all that sort of stuff. So I really learned to cook at home and we had a giant garden um, that was in our backyard. So we had a ton of fresh produce and uh, we were still farming when I was growing up. So my dad's family were pickle farmers um, and he did some farming for a while to help his parents out. And now my cousins farm that land. So that's sort of where I grew up. And then um, like any farm kid, uh, as soon as I turned 16, I wanted to not work on the farm. And so I got a job in Holland, Michigan at Peretti's and that started, I was just like a busser and a deli counter worker and really fell in love with restaurants with that. Well, look at that. I feel like that was very um, sort of cutting edge for you all to have like that 
very from a young age appreciation for eating like locally farmed ingredients you know it you said that was in the 80s but you know i feel like as a collective consciousness here in america that wasn't really something that became super popular until more recently so was that kind of interesting for you to see that change over the last like couple of decades it's true and i for me you know it had never really occurred to me that people didn't know where their food came from because we grew up in it. Um, and so when I, but then when I started working at Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, my chef and mentor there, Roger Bowser, started bringing in local produce for the deli case. And I was like, these are things I've never seen before. You know, I've never seen speckled trout, romaine lettuce, or some of the radicchios and trevisos and things like that. Um, I had never harvested asparagus fresh out of the ground. Um, so it was interesting having that connection to agriculture and specifically the people who work the land, but still not kind of understanding some of the more artisan side of the food world. So it was really at Zingerman's that those two parts of what I, you know, now really prize came together. And then Roger sent me to Ballymaloo for cooking school because I was kind of deciding what I wanted to do. And he encouraged me to go there. And Ballymaloo is on a hundred acre working organic farm in Southern Ireland. And so we were cooking just from the farm and it really just made a ton of sense to me. Wow. That is so cool. So you, what were some of the produce items that you had at the farm where you grew up? Because you were kind of describing some ones that you weren't familiar with, but which ones were you familiar with at that time? I mean, our garden had your kind of standard tomatoes, sweet corn, um, things like that, you know, lots of peppers and um, more of the summery, summery stuff. But the farm that I grew up on was a pickle farm. So we grew pickling cucumbers for Heinz mostly. Um, And so it it was interesting because I think that sort of showcases the two ways that people interact with agriculture that are often different, which is that a lot of farmers, you know, we grew cucumbers, but cucumbers weren't like in every dinner. It wasn't like how when I started farming for myself, it was like, oh, we're going to eat everything that we grow. And even to this day, you know, my cousins now farm my family's land and they grow edible black beans. And when I was interviewing my cousin Matt for Grist, the book that came before Pulp, I asked him, you know, what, what's your favorite thing to make with the black beans? And he was like, oh, I don't eat them. I just send them, you know, they're just a, it's a commodity. It's a, it's a crop uh, for them to, to buy and sell and things like that. So I think there is a really big difference between the sort of markets of food um, and, and who's, if you're eating what you're growing and in pulp, the fruit cookbook that just came out, that was one of the biggest things I wanted to try to express is there are these, all these different markets for fruit. That's not just farmer's markets. Okay. Well, that's so cool. I'm just like so fascinated because it's, I don't know, I I grew up in South Florida, which is like a pretty metropolitan area. And there's not, I mean, there's some farming that happens around here, but not a ton. And it definitely was not something I was very familiar with. And the more people I meet and talk to that were involved in that walk of life, it's just such a, it's such a learning thing for me to hear about because it was just so far from my upbringing. So that is very, very cool. And so you started working in a restaurant at a relatively young age and decided, I guess, what was the path like from there where you were like, I'm going to make a career out of this? 
Uh, I mean, I think the path was uncertain (laughs) most of the time. Um, Yeah, I, you know, started working in restaurants and then went to the University of Michigan, knew that I wanted to get a job to help kind of defray costs of going to school and remembered Zingerman sort of and kind of stumbled into it. And everyone who worked there seemed really happy at their job. And so I applied and then I worked there for five years Um, and it was there that it was kind of like, okay, is this going to be something I pursue? Was this, you know, just for funsies while I lived in Ann Arbor and I got to learn a bunch of great things and then, and then move on. And so then when I went to Ballymaloo, it became like, okay, I think I'm going to focus on this. And I always thought that I, I was a history and English major. So I always thought that I would want to write about food. And so in order to write about it, I should learn about it. And that was kind of the intention. And I went to cooking school and then I just continued to fall in love with the craft of, of making food. And yet, you know, being at Ballymaloo and thinking about there's such a huge, I mean, the food world is so huge. And so Mm -hmm. how do you, where, what part of it do you want to exist in? And I just realized, you know, people don't understand what it takes to bring food to market. And so maybe as a chef, I could provide a window for people into how that happens. Um, And so that was kind of the idea in the very, very, very back of my head. Um, And then that's kind of been the North Star ever since. So that's really what we try to do. I've tried to do for my whole career. And then also specifically at Grainer, where we host these farm dinners, is um, to give people kind of a a window into what it takes to grow food. And we're certainly not the only way to grow food. We just happen to do it this one way. And we hope that they'll find, you know, other farmers that practice different techniques and, you know, different, operate at different scales, things like that. Yeah. So what does that look like at the farm? Yeah. And we talked a little bit about, you know, those dinners. And obviously it sounds like you're trying to give people that, immersive experience that they may not get other places. So if you could describe a bit, I guess, the spark notes of how that works and what one can experience if they come to the farm to have that. Yeah. So people buy tickets on our site and we host dinners year round. So uh, each dinner is created, each menu is created for that particular dinner. Um, And it's really based on what we're harvesting at the farm, anything that we have in our pantry, things we've preserved or, you know, put up for the season, and then things that we're bringing in from our farming neighbors, because we don't have, um, like, we don't have livestock on the farm, we have some chickens for eggs, but that's about it. And we don't have dairy. So we bring those things in to round out the menu. And then people arrive, it's one seating. So it's, you know, 48 or so people in the main dining room. And then 14, we have a private dining room for special events and things like that. Um, And everyone arrives, they are given a a tour of the farm or a talk about Greater's history, what we do, why we do it. And then we go into this beautiful glass greenhouse um, that is a true Dutch greenhouse and um, have dinner. And so in the wintertime, we grow a lot of the greens for the dinner in the greenhouse on the, like the grow house on the other side of the dining room. So people get to come in and, you know, see something as simple as the succession planting that we do for the greenhouse greens. So, you know, the first trays on one side had these little tiny sprouts. The ones that were from the next week are a little bit bigger all the way up to the size that they're going to see on their plate. And that's just kind of a little, you know, snippet of how we try to connect that um, when we do the walking tour in the summer, you know, we'll stop in the different field sections and say, why is this one covered in a big 
black tarp. Well, it's a silage tarp that we use to, you know, help us with weeding and things like that. And this is the garlic patch and we just harvested all the garlic. So now it has baby kale in it. And this kale was planted in April. So it's much bigger, you know, things like that. So just trying to give people kind of a tactile visual for what happens on a farm. Cool. Well, that sounds so fun. And what is the feedback like? Are people like so impressed and like loving it or what? I'm sure you get a lot of positive feedback, but what, what is the experience like that you hear from, from with that? Yeah, it's so, it's such a fun way to cook. Um, it's an open kitchen. So we really get to interact with everyone. Our staff is, you know, the cooks also spend time in the field as much as we can. And there's also a field crew that comes and works the events on the weekend. So everybody wears lots of different hats. So the best experience that I've ever had there is when, you know, I kind of introduce the menu but then each cook has, you know, their favorite dish. That was maybe their idea in the menu brainstorming session the week before, and they really want to talk about it. So then they'll help run the food to the table for that, that course and then tell people, you know, I harvested those carrots or this is why they're sweeter after frost or, you know, things like that. Um, and then the, the most successful thing is we try to cook food that is, you know, worthy of their money and spending a night out on the town. It's the town. <laughs> it's a <very> small town. <laughs> um, but it's also something that doesn't feel super foreign so that, cause really we sell vegetables and grains. And so we want people to come to the store and, and buy a head of kohlrabi. So my best case scenario is someone comes to a dinner on a Friday night and then has a kohlrabi dish that feels compelling to them and that feels accessible to them. And and then they show up at the farm store on Saturday and they buy kohlrabi and we've emailed them the recipe and then they can go home and make it and feel like they're truly a part of our farm or just a part of, you know, the system as a whole. Right. That is so cool. I would, I mean, I don't live anywhere near Michigan, but if I did, I would be there because that sounds <laughs> delightful <laughs> and just like super educational and enjoyable. So I think that's, that's really cool that you all do that. And in addition to doing all this and, you know, everything that you do at the restaurant, you've also been pumping out cookbooks. So <laughs> what has that been like for you? I know that writing a cookbook and doing all of that is definitely very labor intensive. So how has that felt for you to be able to have your recipes in people's homes all over the country and world? What is that like for you? It's incredible. Uh, you know, when I wrote Ruffage, maybe the entire time, I like couldn't believe it was actually happening um, because it is just such a such a wonderful thing and always felt like it was done by, you know, other people, not, not folks from where I grew up or, or, or me, you know? Um, and so I liked doing it so much, uh, that after Ruffage was published, I started pretty quickly thinking about, uh, I hope, <laughs> I hope they'll let me do this again. And so I was talking to my editor and saying, you know, I really love the structure of the books where each chapter is an ingredient. And then you have different preparation techniques and different flavor combinations, trying to give people some sense of how they can make it kind of a choose your own adventure so that they don't have to follow the recipe directly, but that there's a good recipe there for them to follow as well if they want to. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. And then we just kept going and Grist and Pulp uh, were contracted at the same time. So that's why it made sense to do them in pretty quick succession and just have fun. So I, you have how many now? Four, three? Three. Yep. So three, three. books. 
Um, and they're really all focused on the things that are the cornerstones of the food that I make, which is, you know, produce. So Ruffage was all about my time farming um, up in northern Michigan and how it really changed my style of cooking to be much more vegetable focused. And then Grist is on grains and legumes, which I couldn't have written without being at Grainer Farm because I started there in 2017, which was the same year that our grain program started to scale up. And so all of a sudden I was working with fresh beans that were just unlike any other beans I had worked with, you know, wheat berries and all of these oats that would sprout very quickly and were super flavorful and really fun to work with. Um, so that was a, a really special second book. And then pulp is all about fruit. So Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation, second to California. And that's because we grow so much fruit. We have a wonderful natural protection from the cold in Lake Michigan. It, it moderates our weather and is our also our like glacial topography is really great for growing fruit. Um, so lots of hills, which gives good breezes and um, it's just a really wonderful place for it. I did not know that about Michigan, actually, that it was so diverse with produce and whatnot. So I guess that's You'll learn something new every day. <laughs> and that's amazing. All right, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So what is kind of on your future goals and plans coming up? Is there anything like, I know the, the brand new cookbook is out into the world now, which is very exciting. Congratulations on that. But is there any other big things on the horizon for you? I'm going to take a nap uh, yeah, for a right? while. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's been a wonderful four years, and I hope that I can continue to to write. Um, I don't have anything in the works right now. There's a part of me that uh, these books are all, I mean, they're dense. They're like 465 pages each. There's a wow. lot of information conveyed. Um, and it's really, they're meant to be sort of teaching tools um, so that you can kind of internalize something the way you would if you worked in a restaurant kitchen and then be able to apply it in your home kitchen. Um, 
I also think, I think I've fallen in love a little bit with the idea of just a straight ahead cookbook where there's, you know, just go to the store and buy these things and this is going to be delicious. And I've been Uh trying to make my diet more, more plant-based and more vegan. And so I've been playing around with some ingredients that I don't, I I don't usually work with on a daily basis because I think it's the right thing. Um, So maybe something like that. I'm also trying to, and you guys do this so well, um, just continue to try to give people options to tell their own stories about these kind of invisible jobs in the food world. Um, You know, so much goes into making food available, um, let alone making a restaurant run, let alone making, you know, apple pie filling on the shelf. You know, there's a million people who move in behind the scenes to make all of that happen. So I'd love to shine a little bit of light on those, those professions. That's really cool. And I feel like that's definitely an area that's not as tapped into. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's cool to see that element being brought to light. And I just am very impressed and excited to hear about everything that you have going on over there. And so your family, you know, since they were the ones who, you know, growing up on the farm and whatnot, are they so proud and excited to see that you've really taken your life in this direction after your childhood of having that be such a big part of your life? I mean, I think so. I, I didn't come from a family that uh, ever really tells you that they're pleased with something that you've done. Um, but I hear it from other people who talk to my 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 dad, especially. You know, I always joke, uh, it's still wild to hear that any of these books are somewhere else. You know, like I just got a, a note from someone in New Zealand and they're reading about, you know, fruit production in Southwest Michigan, which is pretty wild. Um, and I said something like, oh, it's amazing that someone besides my dad has read this. And my dad messaged me and he said, you know, I haven't actually read your cookbook. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So, but I think he's, I think he's kidding. I know he's thumbed through it at least. He likes the, he likes to flip at it. that is hilarious well hopefully they get around to reading it at some point i i i've never i don't think i've ever seen a cookbook that long is that like remarkably long for the size of a cookbook uh it seems to be and it's just you know hats off to sarah billingsley at chronicle she was has been my editor on all three of these books and um each one i think was supposed to be you know when roughage was contracted it was supposed to be like a quick little 200 page, you know, pocket guide to the market. And, um, it became this, you know, kind of epic tome to vegetables. And so, I uh, she saw that and wanted to go in that direction. And so really did a lot of work, talk about behind the scenes work to make it happen. And then the fruit book was supposed to be smaller as well. And uh, <laughs> it's just not. Um, and I think that for that, the reason pulp is so long is because the photos are so beautiful because it's fruit. So it's bright and colorful and poppy and all that stuff. And so I think they just started like jamming photos in <laughs> even though we were over on page count. <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> exactly. And is there, so when you have people maybe ask you or if you're, you know, kind of teaching people a little bit, you know, of education about how to get more involved with eating locally and local farming and all that, is there any like high level takeaways that you tell people who maybe, 
you know, like, for example, if you live in New York City and you're not really particularly near a lot of farms, you know, how to kind of incorporate that lifestyle into one's life a little more. Is there any like high level tips that you give? Um, I mean, I would say farmers markets across the country are growing. And so the best thing you can do is go to buy directly from a farmer there. You know, it's more of your money is staying in the farm itself if you buy direct. Um, second, and you know, the really important thing about farmers markets is go when it rains because the farmers are there too. And so it's like one of the biggest things that if when people show up on a rainy, cold farmers market day and they're still like there to support you, it just means the world. Um, so that's my like number one farmers market <laughs> ask. Really? Um, if you, you know, aren't going to a farmer's market, which not, not you can't always go. I don't go to a farmer's market every week because it's not practical for me. Um, but buying scratch ingredients. So, you know, if something is a fresh fruit or vegetable or is frozen in the freezer section, but it's not turned into something else, you're getting, you're putting dollars into that fresh food economy. Whereas if you buy cherry pie filling, you know, which is also totally reasonable, but then you're sort of incentivizing this production of cherry pie filling. Um, but if you buy cherries, then you're giving kind of dollars to that market, if that makes sense. Okay, cool. I had never thought about the whole rainy thing. That's, <laughs> that's, I really never thought of that. Is that really like a kind of common thing that at farmer's markets when it's like cold and rainy, they're just like, I mean, I guess that makes sense that they're like totally dead, but I guess you, I hadn't really put two and two together on that, that that would make such a big difference. And yeah, that's just, that's interesting to hear. Very <laughs> amazing. Um, rainy that we would have a 25% of our normal Um, And so, you know, a lot of growers will look at the weather. I mean, they're constantly looking at the weather anyway, um, and they'll bring less stuff or, you know, things like that. But it's always really meaningful when people come out anyway. Okay, cool. And have you been on the other, like, have you spent a lot of time on the other side at farmer's markets where you're kind of selling stuff at farmer's markets as well, other than going and sourcing things? Yeah. When I was farming up in Northport, we did four farmer's markets a week at the height of the summer. Um, And so it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's sort of like cooking in an open kitchen where you get all of this interaction with the people that you're feeding and just how special that is. Uh, You know, I think one of the things that you lose when I had a cook, I worked for Sky Gingle for a long time ago, right out of cooking school. And um, every, she tried to seat the cooks in the dining room, like at least once a year. And the way she explained that to me is she said, you know, when you're on the line, you're going to make, you know, 80 gnocchi in a night, right? 80 dishes of gnocchi. Um, But you just want to get those tickets out of your face. You want to be done. You like, you know, you've got so many things going on, but when you're a dinner guest, that's your, maybe your one plate of food that you're getting. And it should feel like it's the only thing that's being made in the entire restaurant. And I think that's true when you get to see people enjoying that food, it makes it a lot easier to remember, I'm going to take my time with this. I'm going to make this sauce perfect. I'm going to season this perfectly. I'm going to taste it before it goes out. And the same is true as a grower. You know, when you get to 
there's always pressures of like, oh, the salad got really hot last week. The lettuce is starting to bolt. Is it, is it good enough to sell? Yeah, I think it's fine. And then, uh, you know, when you see someone buying it, you're like confident, like, yes, I made the right choice. This is totally good to sell. It's good for their dinner. And it just makes it harder to want to pass off something that isn't, isn't exactly what you want people to share. Interesting. Well, there, you're just hitting me with all kinds of perspectives that I literally have never thought about. So <laughs> I'm just like fascinated. One of the benefits of having had like 14 jobs. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I've been to farmers markets, but I definitely have never known personally any growers super well. So um, that's super fascinating to hear about, and just all of these different perspectives are so cool. <laughs> Was there anything major important that I hadn't asked you to? touch on yet that I'm missing? Cause there, it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of action to be had, but is there anything that I'm missing? I mean, I think what you just said about not knowing folks that are growing food, uh, you're not alone. A hundred years ago, 30% of America's population were farmers. Mm-hmm. And today it's about 3%. Three? And there's three. Yep. And wow. there's lots of reasons for that. And some of them are good. It's a lot easier to farm several thousand acres in Iowa with modern GPS than when you just had a horse, you know? Um, So those things are good. But one of the consequences of that is that people just don't interact with growers. And I think that there's, um, there's a lot to be learned for a lot to be said for these professionals that it is an incredibly like difficult job that requires smarts and science and creativity and hard work and flexibility. Um, so it feels really important to me with that. And I think, you know, that's certainly true of fruit growers. And so they're in pulp. There's several different interviews uh, throughout the book about folks that interact in the food world in different ways. And one of the things that's the biggest to think about if anybody understands like cash flow and overhead, you know, if you plant a cherry tree, you're going to have about seven years before it's producing at its, you know, maximum amount. I, I forget what the term is for that, but like until it's really producing at the volume that you need, but you're, that's a lot of overhead, you know, yeah. that's seven years of paying for the trees, paying for the land, paying for all the inputs, mowing it, you know, all those sorts of things um, before you're even harvesting fruit off from it. And so I don't know, there's just a lot of those things with it. And I remember when um, uh, Bloomberg was running for president, he said something along the lines of like, how hard is it to be a farmer? You just put a seed in the ground and wait. And yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no wonder he's not president today, but I, that's, you know, it, I don't, I don't think that that's, he's alone in that. And so I think that it's really, it's a trite saying, it's like a bumper stick saying, bumper sticker saying that, um, no farms, no food, but it really, it really is true. And so I think people, I don't want to like belabor it because food is also just delicious and fun and, you know, a treat. Uh, but there is a lot that goes into it behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that people don't think about enough, honestly. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it really takes kind of getting to know people who are growers or spending time at a farm or kind of getting more involved in that. And just like quick little segue, but I was actually a TV news reporter in Wisconsin for two years before I got into Mm. food media. And so I actually, for whatever was going on in the news 
at that time regarding growing or if there was like a bad season or a bad storm or whatever. There was different times where I'd have to interview local farmers and go out and like the main crops out there were kind of corn and soybeans. And then there was obviously dairy and all that type of stuff. But I had never, like I said, growing up in South Florida, been on farms or had anything to do with that. And then in that, in those situations, I was kind of learning more about it. And then in my current role as, you know, being in food media, kind of learning more about it by talking to, you know, restaurateurs and growers who are kind of involved with that whole local farming thing. So it's been a very, very slow burn in my education of how that all works. But I feel like every time I have an opportunity like this to talk to someone like you or whenever I was visiting farms in Wisconsin and interviewing growers and farmers, it was like, oh my gosh, this is such a huge part of the world that just is so out of the regular purview of the day-to-day person. So yeah, I mean, I appreciate you sharing all that and the work that you do day to day and kind of making that more well known. So yeah, just all around. Thanks for the education and for teaching me and others. Well, thank you for creating a place to exchange these ideas. I mean, none of this can happen in isolation and Heritage Network Radio has just been at the forefront of being able to tell a lot of these stories. And it's just, I, I'm, I'm in awe of what you guys do. Woohoo. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure and a thrill. And I am definitely hungry, as expected, mm-hmm. after talking to you. <laughs> and yeah, just congratulations on everything in the new book and everything you've got going on. And if I I don't foresee it happening anytime soon, but if I ever find myself in Michigan, I will certainly not let you know. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate it back. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook, author, chef, or restaurateur, we would love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.